Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Jim, the alarm bells are ringing on debt. Government debt is rising despite an economy that's been growing for the last eight years. So are we heading into a new debt crisis? Maya McGinnis. The debt will be as large as our entire economy by the end of a decade. Um, Interest payments are the single fastest growing part of the budget. Basically, every indicator that you could look for in terms of the numbers are on flashing red alert. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Thanks to tax cuts and spending increases, plus the rising cost of borrowing money, America certainly appears to be heading into a new debt crisis. A recent report from the International Monetary Fund predicted the United States is the only advanced economy in the world expected to have its debt burden get worse over the next five years. Think about that. That's that's really scary, I think. So are we mortgaging our future? We'll find out in this episode. Maya McGinnis is president of the Nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and head of the campaign to fix the debt. Maya McGinnis joins us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So go ahead, Maya. Scare us. Just how bad is our debt crisis? So the numbers, no matter how you slice them, are really bad. Um, We are about to hit trillion-dollar deficits every year forever. Um, And what's really troubling about that is that this is during a period of economic strength. So it's not the result of a recession uh, or some huge emergency. It's self-imposed. The debt will be as large as our entire economy by the end of a decade. Um, Interest payments are the single fastest growing part of the budget. Basically, every indicator that you could look for in terms of the numbers are on flashing red alert. Wait, and, you said that the debt is going to be as big as the entire economy. Yeah. I, okay, Under, I'm having trouble having that even sink in. It, it should be hard to sink in. What I really feel is that as bad as it is economically, it now reflects our broken governance system. Uh, the average debt relative to the economy in this country has been below 40%. So it's going to be significantly higher than that. It's already at 77%. Um, but that slows economic growth. So when you say that, that within a decade, mm-hmm. our total federal debt, uh, what we owe, 
will be equal to the economy. You, you mean that it will be equal to one year's output of all the goods and services of the U.S. economy, yes? Precisely. So another problem is that right now the borrowing costs for all of this debt are relatively cheap. I mean, interest rates are pretty low, and they're heading up, which means that interest rates uh, are going higher, and the cost of servicing all this debt, all this money um, that that the United States owes, is going to be much higher in the future, even if uh, the total debt doesn't grow, correct? Absolutely. One of the ways that you can kind of get your, your head around that situation is it's a lot like a credit card teaser rate. Rates have been low for quite some time following the, the devastating economic recession in 2008 when the Fed had to bring rates down. But it does appear that rates are going to go up now and probably keep going up. For every one percentage interest rate increase, that costs us $130 billion a year in additional interest payments. So, and again, I know billions, hundreds of billions, trillions, these are all kind of meaningless numbers. But really, one of the worst indicators is the fact that the interest payments are the fastest growing part of the budget, faster than health care costs, faster than retirement costs. And that means as much as Republicans and Democrats like to fight over size of government, should we have tax cuts, should we have spending increases, the more you're paying on interest, the less of the pie you even have to fight over. And a lot of those interest payments are going out of our economy completely because we borrow a significant amount from abroad. Now, back in the 1930s, the British economist John Maynard Keynes famously claimed that a government that does deficit spending, and especially in tough times, can boost the economy very dramatically. So if you take that argument, isn't this deficit spending a good thing? Doesn't it help the economy grow? Oh, exactly the opposite. So what that would show and has shown in the past is that what you want to do is stimulate the economy, either through tax cuts or spending increases, when you have a downturn. So when we had a big recession in 2008, it was really good that we were able to not only borrow, but borrow significantly to help compensate for that recession, which could have become even worse. But the important thing was, at the time, our debt was 38% of GDP. So being able to borrow a lot to help fight that recession wasn't a big concern. The worry now is that the next time we go into a recession and we would want to borrow again, our debt will be twice as high relative to the economy. So what you want to do, and what Keynesian economics would agree as well, is that it depends on where you are in the business cycle. When your economy is weak, that's a good time for a budget deficit. When your economy is strong, like it is right now, that's when you want to run a budget surplus, or at least make sure your debt's not growing faster than the overall economy. But we actually just don't like paying for things, whether the economy's weak or strong. We run deficits regardless. Maya, you've been talking about debt and deficits. So can you explain what the difference is? Absolutely. So the deficit is how much we borrow every year. The government spends between three and a half, four trillion dollars and it brings in less than that in revenues, the difference is the annual deficit. That's the number that in about two years is going to hit a trillion dollars. The debt is basically the accumulated years of deficits. And the debt gets smaller when you run a budget surplus. It's just that we don't do that very often anymore. 
And the political environments got worse. The last time the federal government ran an annual surplus as opposed to an annual deficit was during President Clinton's administration. And then we've had three administrations. First, George W. Bush, his administration, which poo-pooed the idea that there was a problem with deficits. Then we had uh, Barack Obama's administration that didn't really spend much time worrying about the size of the federal deficit. And now we have uh, Donald Trump and his administration in Insisting that we can grow our way out of this whole problem. Yeah, so absolutely. It has been a long, long... Budget surpluses feel like a distant memory. No, you're right. I was thinking of the first Bush, where he first raised taxes, which is what helped got us into the Clinton surpluses. You're right. So President Bush, who had a strong economy, actually cut taxes and raised spending. That made the situation worse. President Obama did inherit a very difficult... Um, economy. And much of his emphasis had to be on how to fix us from getting into a worse recession. Um, but when there was an opportunity to do a big budget deal, he actually did try to do one with Leader Boehner, Speaker Boehner, but they were unable to get that done. And after that, there was much less of an emphasis on the issue. And I think really the most irresponsible kind of environment that we've seen in quite some time is where we are right now, where the economy is strong. But what we have seen in the past six months is a huge, nearly unprecedented tax cut, and then followed by huge increases in national spending. Maya, you know, our show is called How Do We Fix It? And a lot of what we do is we try to get ideas from across the political spectrum. Now, you run something called the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And looking at your board of directors, it really is truly bipartisan. You have people like Leon Panetta from the Clinton-Obama administrations, Mitch Daniels, who ran the uh, Office of Management and Budget for Bush. So you got these people from very different sides of, of the political aisle, but you got them to agree. How do you come up with suggestions that really are genuinely bipartisan? I've been struck by how willing people are to compromise. That's not as true, though, once you get into kind of the very highly partisan people who are focused more on one party or another winning instead of fixing the fiscal situation. Because the things you have to do to start to move into our specifics, raising taxes or cutting a bunch of spending or fixing Social Security and Medicare, all of those things are a lot easier to demagogue against. So we have an online budget simulator called Debt Fixer, which people try to fix the debt on their own a lot or, you know, Friday night parties with debt fixers. We think it's fun. (laughs) It's a great experience because you go through and see what the trade-offs are and you work with somebody who loves farm programs and you love defense and someone else loves tax cuts and you work your way through it and see what the numbers get you to and where the compromises might lie. But outside of the most partisan environments, it's not as hard as, as our politicians make it seem as though it is. Okay, well, we're going to talk about debt fixes coming up. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Maya McGinnis, who is president of the Nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and head of the campaign to fix the debt. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Maya, if we could switch now to solutions, the first step, admitting we have a problem. So we need a national debt audit, you say. What is that? Well, I think one of the things we don't do is we don't hold the members of Congress accountable for what their votes are. So there are years when we have, well, first off, there are years we don't have a budget in place at all. But there are years when we have a budget. And sadly, the budget has almost become a pretend and political document. So recently, the budget that's been put forth has said we promised to balance the budget in 10 years. We're going to cut $7 trillion, uh, and that's how we're going to get there. But then the members go forward and vote things that are completely at odds with that plan to balance the budget in 10 years or save $7 trillion. So I think one thing that would be useful is if we actually knew how much each and every member of Congress voted that increased the debt in a year. Because we don't hold people accountable at all. And I think most members don't even know what the effect of their votes has been on the national debt. So I think tracking that and publicizing that would be immensely helpful for voters to be able to see when somebody promises that they're not going to add to the debt, how does that actually line up with the votes that they cast? What's the number one thing that could be done to reduce the debt or at least start reducing annual deficits? So there's the immediate things where we just passed a one and a half trillion dollar tax cut that in many that by all accounts was incredibly unaffordable. And there's all sorts of stories. This is going to grow the economy so much it will pay for itself. Yeah. If only that were true. We need to fix that tax bill. One way to do that is we have well over a trillion dollars in tax breaks every single year in our tax code. So we could go through our tax code and get rid of a lot of the tax breaks. And I don't mean to make that sound small. These are things people love, people and companies love. But we did just cut taxes massively. We need to figure out a way to offset some of those costs. We could do that immediately. But in that tax bill, there were some cuts to to tax breaks. I mean, there was the uh, restriction of the uh, mortgage interest deduction and, and the ability to deduct your your state and local taxes above a certain level. Uh, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Should we go farther with those? We, we need to go much farther. So basically, we only took a tiny share of those tax breaks. I, you know, I mean, if we have one and a half trillion dollars in tax breaks a year, which is how much we had at the time, all we had to do was basically cut 10 percent of them and we would have paid for the tax bill in its entirety. But we didn't come close to doing that. So we need to go back and look at more like things, uh, um, the health care exclusion. So your compensation your, that is in the form of health care isn't taxed. That has a lot of negative effects, actually. It makes health care costs go up. You're saying that over time that benefit has, has grown to the point where we overly rely on businesses to buy our health care and that's driving up health care costs? Well, what we do is we give you a tax break if your compensation is in the form of health care, but not so if it's in wages. So it encourages more health care consumption 
And what it means is that people who get very generous health care plans who tend to be more well off don't pay taxes on that, while people who get smaller tax uh, health care plans or none at all don't get that same tax break. What are some other tax breaks yeah, that, and, and that would really help if we got rid of them? A lot of the things we want to help with, education, housing, health care are the best examples. We then proceed to give tax breaks for them, the home mortgage interest deduction, uh, education savings accounts, health care exclusion. In what it ultimately does is it drives up the cost of those things. We've certainly seen that in some parts of the country with housing, for instance. Well, and I was just going to use that example. If you look at the home mortgage interest deduction, when they talk about making changes to it, which they did uh, in this past tax bill, but there's more you could do, who lobbies the hardest to preserve it? Not homeowners, though they like the the, the build the builders, the builders, the lenders. So okay. Reducing tax breaks or ending a lot of tax breaks, that's, that's one solution. But we need, we need more, don't we? We do, and it needs to be both on the spending side and the revenue side. When you folks in Washington talk about revenue, you mean taxes, right? Because I've heard that word revenue before, but most of us think, oh, that means we're going to pay more taxes. Oh, yeah. Uh, let, let's be really clear. Taxes. <laughs> and, <laughs> Thanks. And, I mean, it, and even, even, a, even a tariff about, is a tax in the end. Yeah, even when you talk about raising taxes that directly aren't on people, whether it's a corporate tax or a carbon tax, they get funneled back to us. So I don't want to whitewash it. We are going to have to pay more. But yes, the government's going to need more revenues, and we're going to have to get that by taxes. And I just think that a carbon tax is an interesting one because it helps it helps both in the energy and environment sectors as well as helping to raise those new revenue. There are a lot of different possibilities. There's also yeah, let, taxes. Let's, uh, let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's zoom in on the carbon tax for yeah. a second. We, it's not a new topic for listeners of how do we fix it. And we've heard some interesting proposals, including one from former Congressman Bob Inglis. What kind of carbon tax would you recommend? And, and why is this something – why are we looking at carbon now? I would look at whatever could pass. So I think <laughs> all of these are really, really hard. And I am certainly in the camp of don't let the enemy be the perfect of the good. So the reason that I do think carbon tax is something to think about is a basic bumper sticker economics that my graduate school teacher hammered in all of our heads. And it's, it's just hard to argue with. But tax things you want less of, not things you want more of. We have a lot of taxes in this country on income and savings. We actually want more income and more savings. But if you look at taxing things like pollution or excessive consumption when you're consuming too much, though that's not always true in a recession, but consumption, things that are bad, that's why people have talked about taxing sugary drinks or other things like that. It is wiser to find something you want less of. And so CO2 emissions is certainly in that camp. And it makes sense to me that if you can find a policy that could achieve more than one goal at a time, that's a good starting place. Any other taxes that you would put up? Oh, I mean, I'm open to anything. I think that we actually, I was a big fan of corporate tax reform, but we just had a corporate tax cut that is uh, pretty much by all accounts beyond what we needed, bringing the corporate rate down to 21%. You could peel back some of the tax cuts that we just passed. I think that would make a lot of sense. Those are individual and corporate income taxes. Um I would not probably raise the payroll tax rate 
if I could help it, because I think it's a pretty regressive tax and it's on wages. But you could lift the cap. That goes to how you'd fix Social Security. That tax is on uh, is, is supposed to fund Social Security, right? Social Security and Medicare. That's right. I think most people know this, but ex- explain what you mean when you say a tax is regressive. Oh, right. A tax is regressive if a bigger burden of it falls on lower income people. You know, it's funny. You, so you're talking about the, the not wanting the tax system to be too regressive. On the other side of the equation, it seems like there's a lot of people today influenced by the kind of Bernie Sanders movement who think there's an just inexhaustible source of yes. money by taxing the top one or five percent. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up, because that is one of the biggest and frankly, most damaging myths out there. But the notion that you can fix everything or double our Social Security program or have pre-K for all all we have to do is tax millionaires and billionaires and big, bad corporations is really a dangerous argument because there isn't enough money in all those places to fix everything. What are examples, though? We, we've talked about making the tax system less regressive. Are there taxes that would be progressive, that, that would be effective? Well, so when you lift, if you lift the income tax rates... You can lift the lower ones, which would be more flat or regressive, or you could lift the upper ones, which would be more progressive. Um, A financial transactions tax is probably more progressive. A carbon tax or a sales tax tends to be more regressive. Which is Absolutely. Right, right. Because right. Right. a lot a lot of people drive long distances or they, they may have a pickup truck or an older car that's not getting as good miles per gallon. And it consumes a greater share of their income. But we should also remember in tax policy, there's not just one lever. So a lot of times I almost always look at sort of a, a suite of policies. You do a carbon tax, but you also tie that with a rebate where you would give lump sum amounts back to families, which is one thing that would actually help them like the policy, but it would also equalize those distributions. Let's talk now about spending, about places where you would argue there needs to be cuts. First, um, Social Security. Are we running out of funds for Social Security? In the year 2033, give or take, the actuaries of the Social Security program predict that the trust fund will no longer have enough revenues to pay full benefits. Now, that sounds like that's far off, but it's actually not that far off. Somebody who's roughly 50 will be retiring right when the the trust funds no longer have the money to pay full benefits. If we do nothing before then, which would be utterly stupid to continue to kick the can instead of fixing this in advance because we know this problem is there, there will be across-the-board benefit cuts of 23% for every single person from the poorest widow who relies on the program to the person with disability. Just like we have that debt fixer, we also have a Social Security fixer on mine. So we invite everybody to look through the program and figure out how they would fix it. I mean, people can fight over how to fix it, but nobody should be pretending we don't need it. Speaking of, speaking of fixing, we'll have links to your, to your debt fixer. Yeah, we'll have those on our website, okay. howdowefixit.me. People Not, send us their results because we love sharing them with members of Congress, and we track them, and we're trying to figure out what's the, what's the thing that people want in this country. How would this country fix it? So we love that. Thank you. That is, that's, that is really smart. You can invite all your, all your, all your wonky friends. So we have a crisis looming, but no one seems to feel like it's a crisis. 
How do you sell this? Do you deliver every parent a, uh, a bill when their child is born telling them what this kid is going to owe, <laughs> you know, through her or his life? I mean, what, what can we do to raise the awareness of just how serious this is? Well, I'm just sitting here smiling because that's like one of the best ideas I've heard in a while. I love. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go hang out in, in the in the hospitals and hand out that bill because it is. I mean, there are a couple things that make people care about this issue. And again, it's dry. It's wonky. It's hard to connect to your life when you're worried about healthcare costs and retirement costs and saving for your kids' education. Somebody preaching about debt reduction is tough to feel tangible. But people do care about their kids and their grandkids. And people also do know that having an economy where you are dependent on borrowing, particularly from abroad and often from countries that you're not aligned with, is not a way to maintain prosperity. You can't borrow your way to prosperity. I think we need to do a better job of publicizing all the damage that is being done. When somebody gives a tax cut or a spending increase, everybody likes it because they don't have to focus on the side of what we're doing to the national debt or our children. So finding better ways to make that is the first step. Like one of you said, admitting we have a problem. <laughs> Maya McGinnis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was really fun. I want to start with a quote. When the sun is shining, please fix the roof. Uh, that's from uh, the managing director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde. And what she is saying is the time is now when the economy is strong. And we have such a hard time in our politics wrapping our minds around it. To me, it's in some ways, it's the, the curse of two opposing economic political ideas. One was Keynesianism that we mentioned, who, you know, he suggested that— This that, is John Maynard Keynes. Yeah, the great British economist uh, who suggested that deficit spending can help boost economies out of recessions. A lot of people on the left— they absorb that part of the message, but they didn't hear his second part. It's like, then you have to stop doing deficit spending as soon as the economy recovers. But we tend to see on the left this general sense that, that, that government spending, deficit spending is always a good thing and, and helps drive the economy. And then on the right, we, we have this whole thing about how it's – isn't it wonderful we're cutting taxes? And the Laffer curve, the famous analysis during the Reagan era that taxes are too high and you cut them, you can actually get more revenue – True to a point if taxes are very high on, in certain and sectors. And true to a point about deficit spending, same right. thing. You know? But neither one of those things is true in the extreme. And both sides need to admit that we're not going to get everything we want. And, and part of what this show has made me realize is before you come up with a solution, you have to admit there's a problem. Right. And that's missing from the current debate. And there's not much awareness of it. I think the best thing that could be done to, to help begin to address awareness is talk to people in high school and college that basically the old folks, the geezers are ripping you off. <laughs> They're taking your money. By the time you're in your 40s, your taxes are going to have to go way up to, to be paying all this off. Get people mad about how unfair the system is, how it's actually really skewed against younger people. I think that's the first step. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. One of the new podcast series we just launched is One Day University. If you like listening to this show, you'll probably find One Day University interesting, too. Uh, t check it out at uh, onedayu.com.
Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.